time to put on the brakes and pull into Purple Car Park, your stop for book reviews, author interviews, and thoughts about the act of reading in our super-digital, data-driven world. Hosted by Miss Purple Car herself, Christine Cavalier. Hi, Purple Car Parkers. Welcome. With me today is New York Times best-selling author, Daniel H. Pink. He's the creator of the phenomenal books, Free Agent, Nation, and A Whole New Mind. Mr. Pink is also a renowned speaker that regularly lends his expertise about today's creative economy, its workers, and the new workplace to major corporations and universities. Today, we'll be talking about his latest book entitled Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. The book, which I've read and find to be excellent, is an in-depth look at the ever-increasing cracks in the traditional beliefs about human behavior and motivation. Welcome, Daniel Pink. Christine, thank you for having me on your program. Oh, thanks for coming. So the biggest question, and of course the most obvious, what motivated you to write this book and why now? Well, uh, a big part of the motivation was uh, that book you just mentioned, A Whole New Mind, where it argues that we're moving from a world built less on these logical, linear spreadsheet left brain abilities and more on the artistic, empathic right brain abilities. Then it made an argument, an economic argument for why that was happening. And in the course of that, when people who had read that book or heard about it, they said, well, okay, this sounds plausible. This might be right. Uh, if, if you are right or if you're more right than wrong, then, then how do we structure our organizations to take advantage of this? How do we motivate people to do this sort of work? I didn't have a clue. So I did know that there was a large body of research on human motivation. And I went to that, started nosing around there, and I discovered that it was both, it was a huge body of research. It was a treasure trove of research. And it said some very surprising things. It really called into question orthodoxies that I didn't realize were orthodoxies. And that's how it all got started. Give me a quick rundown. What's type A? Money motivated person? Type A are, are people who are, you know, in a hurry, who are stressed, who, um, uh, have a sense of, uh, of, of always this omnipresent sense of time urgency. The guy who started that was a guy named Meyer Friedman, and what he showed is that type A behavior correlated with heart disease. And I think even more important than that, what he did is he put a name on a, a style of behavior that really stuck. And so I actually tried to borrow from that, standing on his shoulder, but also on the shoulder of a guy named Douglas McGregor, who was a legendary management scholar out of MIT Sloan School, who wrote a book in, the, in 1960 called The Human Side of Enterprise, where he had this idea of theory X and theory Y, which is very akin to what I'm talking about. And so what I decided to do was build on those two things and talk about type I behavior and type X behavior. Type I behavior is behavior that is motivated more by internal forces the desire to do something for its own sake because it's interesting, because it matters, that rather than external forces, I want to get the money, I want to get the prize. Type X behavior is the reverse. It's motivated more by external rewards rather than by internal rewards. And that nomenclature, I thought, was a convenient way to describe this. What I found is that type I behavior is almost always leads to higher performance and to better satisfaction. So you coined the terms type I and type X to explain these different motivating behaviors in, in, in you know, the human condition. But mm. let's talk a bit about open source and Wikipedia. Okay. Um, wouldn't behaviorists say that 
it isn't type I exactly, type intrinsic motivation, um, but actually a type of motivation for recognition amongst one's peers or something like that, something tangible of those kind of rewards. On, for open source participation. Yeah, for open source, Wikipedia. Yeah, I, 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 think there's, I think there's something to that. I think recognition is part of it, but I actually think that recognition operates in a slightly different way. That is, in, in, a, somewhat, in a somewhat paradoxical way. Does it fit into type I? Is that one of Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, but, 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 but in a certain way, it can also fit into type X, depending on how you look at it. That is, if you are, if you are participating in open source in order to get recognized for your expertise, if you're doing it saying, I'm going to contribute here so everybody knows that I'm an awesome open source contributor, so that everybody respects me, right? then that's very type X behavior. If your whole point of doing it is to get the recognition, that's very type X. I want to, I want to come back to that for a second. If you're doing it because you want to do open source, because it's challenging, because it's interesting, you want to make a contribution, and you do so well that as a result of that, you get recognition, that's very type I. That is, that's a, that's a reward that comes after the fact. It's not contingent. You're not aiming for it. It's a form of feedback. And I think there's a, there's a couple of interesting studies that I write about that are analogous to this that show that if your whole point is to get that kind of recognition, you're actually less likely to get it because you're focused on the external reward, not on the work itself. And the people who end up getting that recognition, which is welcome, which is delightful, uh, get it as a consequence of being intrinsically motivated and doing something that's really terrific. That recognition is a form of feedback, and feedback is huge in the pursuit of mastery, that if we want to get better at something, then we need feedback. And that kind of recognition is a, is a form of feedback that says, okay, I'm, I'm actually doing a pretty good job. Yeah, but it's it's what you talk about in the book about the after the fact kind of exactly. reward. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a paradox. I mean, I don't know if you remember the study where students at the at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, where they looked at these students in the early 1960s or late 1960s, and they found that about half of them had this orientation internally, and half had this orientation externally. That is, half of them came to art school because they said, "I paint. That's who I am. It's what I love to do." Others said, I'm pretty good at painting, I'm good at painting, and if I keep doing this, I'll make some money, I'll become well-known, I'll maybe have some paintings in galleries, I'll have some paintings perhaps even in museums. 20 years later, they went back to look at what happened to those students, and it turned out about half of them were actually, were making a living as artists, were somewhat well-known, had paintings in galleries, had uh, even a few paintings in museums. And it turned out to be almost entirely the intrinsically motivated people who did that. That is, the people who were most likely to get those external rewards were often the people who were not pursuing them, who were just pursuing doing great stuff. Hmm. Well, that kind of goes to like the latest and greatest one-trick pony that's going around the business community about passion. You know, oh, uh -huh. people like to, to throw this word around, passion, yeah. passion, passion. But, you know, you can't have passion in a pill. You know, it doesn't... Exactly. It, it doesn't well just... Well said. <laughs> you can't just um, pay people to drive up some passion in their person about their job. How do we get to this type I... And please don't tell me it's just something that you have. Like, how do we? No, it's not. It's not. I, I wouldn't. I would never tell you that. Um, well, I mean, I think you know, let's get let's get to first. We can get to first principles here. We tend to think, going back to the whole idea of the book, we tend to think that the way that people perform at a high level is by offering them this arsenal of carrots and sticks. That if you reward something, you'll get more of the behavior you want. 
you, you punish it, you get, you get less of it. And that if we simply dole out these rewards and punishments in the right way, that people will respond. It's a very uh, mechanistic view of human nature. That is, it suggests that human beings are basically robots. It's this view that if you just press the right levers in the right way, people will do what you want them to do. And that's just not true. It's fundamentally not true. It's true, in, I guess, in some circumstances, but as a broad principle, it's just, it's just not true. For the more the non-rote creative conceptual work, uh, those kind, the evidence is pretty clear, and I write about it. The evidence is pretty clear that those kinds of contingent motivators, if you do this, then you get that, they just don't work very well, and they often backfire. What works better, to get to your point, is uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I do think that, uh, it, that, that, that people become engaged through self-direction. No one is managed into, quote-unquote, passion. No one is managed into engagement, that it has to come from within, it has to come from directing your own life. And the way that that can happen is by giving people, by allowing people huge amounts of autonomy over, as you said, these four aspects of their work. Uh, time, when they, do some, when they do their work, team, who they do it with, task, what they actually do, and technique, how they do it. And there are a lot of interesting examples of companies around the world offering seemingly radical amounts of autonomy over these aspects of people's work and seeing good results as a, uh, as a consequence. Do you think they're going to be long-term results? Because these, these are kind of new endeavors, right? I think so. I think they're going to be long-term results in the way that, in, in the sense that it's going to be how more and more companies actually run. Uh, right. That it's, it's, it's going to be seen less as a kind of experimental thing that's a deviation from the norm than what amounts to a kind of standard basic practice of any effective organization. Right. And why do you think that they're stuck in the 50s like that? You know what I mean? It just, it just, With the carrot and stick approach? Yeah. The businesses oh. seem to be, um, you know, they really like the whole Skinnerian thing, like with, <laughs> with the rats in the cages, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think that it persists for a number of reasons. First, it works. I mean, it worked. It has worked. It's certainly not a bad way to motivate people to do relatively routine, rule-based, algorithmic sort of things, whether it's turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line or adding up columns of figures and processing paper in a white-collar office. So it has a history of working, and so I think that deludes us a little bit. The other thing, you know, again, is that it works in a different sense, I guess, in that if I were to say, okay, say that I'm a manager and I want my team to come up with something innovative. And I could say to my team, five or six people, okay, folks, here's what we're going to do. We really need an innovative idea. Whoever comes up with the first innovative idea is going to get a $2,000 bonus. People will respond to that. Mm -hmm. They will respond to that. They will work. They will scurry around. Now, the evidence is pretty clear. They're probably not going to do anything creative. But there's, you're going to get activity. And so I think that fakes out managers and that people respond with activity, not with creativity, but with activity. My argument rooted in the science is that if you really want enduring performance for complex, conceptual, creative work, you have to provide people enormous amounts of autonomy. You have to help them move always toward mastery, making progress, getting better at what they do. And you have to be able to plug in, they have to be able to plug in what they're doing to a cause larger than themselves. All of those are hard. That's very <laughs> difficult. Right, right, right. Saying, hey, here's a $1,000 innovation bonus if you do something great, that's easy. And so I think that's another reason that it persists, that, it, that they, they, they work in the, they've worked in the past, they produce activity in the short term, 
and that they're really easy. But they also, you know what, they it, it costs, I think, businesses in the long run because they lose talent after a while. You just let all that training walk out the door. Because, yep. Because you cannot keep people in jobs that they don't have a creative challenge. And you mentioned that uh, a lot of uh, innovative startups in the book have given the 20% time or the FedEx time right? Um, to kind of address this. Now, what, what is 20% time? Well, 20% time is companies that allow folks who are working there 20% of their time to work on anything they want. Uh, now, the companies that do this don't sign away the intellectual property rights to what's created during that 20%. Right, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's not this kind of foolish, willy-nilly, let-it-all-hang-out kind of thing. So it's done, I mean, the best example of this, the most famous example of this is Google. So Google for a long time has had allowing people to spend 20% of their time working on whatever they wanted. And it turns out that enormous numbers of Google's innovations have come from that time. So Google News was a 20% project, not an official project. Google Mail, Gmail, was not an official project. It was a 20% project. And there are people inside of Google who say, you, you know, all the cool things that we've done, the really game-changing ideas that we've had in products and services, most of them have their roots somehow in 20% time. Let's move this over to parenting because there's a lot here that I think parents could use um, and educators obviously can use for all levels of education because we have a lot of carrots and sticks at home and in school. So what do you think parents and educators could get out of this book? It, it's not all just businesses. It's not all just for business, but what do you think um, traditionally education has been, has been doing wrong um, in this particular sense? Well, I mean, I think that education and parenting are, are somewhat different, even though they both obviously involve kids. I mean, on parents, um, you, you know, a family, is, a family is not a business. That's the problem with, with linking chores to allowances. I mean, I think chores are good. I think allowances are good. Chores are good because people in a family have to help each other out. Uh, allowances are good because if you give a kid a little bit of money, he or she can figure out how to manage money, how to spend money wisely, and those kinds of things. But I think even though they're two good things separately, combining them is a disaster because basically when, once you pay kids for, for – for, the reason you do chores is not for money. You do chores because you're part of a family. You do chores because people in a family take care of each other and help each other out. They're, they're mutual obligations and moral responsibilities. And once you start paying people for something like that, then what you've essentially said is that setting the table or cleaning up your room – is pretty much like working at a fast food restaurant, that it's not about any kind of obligation you have to your family. It's, it's like working at a fast food restaurant and only a chump would do it for free. And then that has the cascading effect, which is that you, know, you start getting demands for more and more money uh, for less and less work. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that, that there, there are differences between businesses and, and, and families. Right. Um, and I, I think that you know, the analogy isn't perfect. That is, businesses exist to make money. And that's not what families are. I mean, families are different organisms. Well, wait, wait, before, this is true, but let's go back to what you call um, for those new businesses that are coming out for benefit. What's a for right. benefit business? Well, what you have is you have people, and it's a good point, you have, you have uh, we, we tend to think that there are only two kinds of business enterprise, two kinds of organizational enterprises. There is, you, you're either... Uh, for-profit or non-profit and what's interesting what's happening right now which I think is really interesting is people pushing against those categories and so for benefit organizations are something like Mozilla which makes Firefox which is uh, neither 
a pure nonprofit nor pure for-profit. For you also have these really interesting things called uh, limited, uh, low-profit limited liability companies, which are- uh, L3C, in, right? Yeah, which are in Vermont and other places. And what they are is they are businesses, a particular entity that isn't a corporation in the traditional sense, um, which has as its you know goal profit maximization. But this is an entity that says, we're a business, we're for profit, but profit maximization isn't our top goal. Our top goal is social benefit, but we're not a nonprofit. Uh, but making a profit isn't our top benefit, is, isn't, our, isn't, our, isn't our aim. So you have people really pushing against these categories of what's, of what's for profit, what's not for profit. And when people start pushing against categories, that's when things get really, really interesting. It suggests that, again, we, we tend to think these certain forms of business, whether it's a sole proprietorship or a stockholding corporation or a limited liability company or a 501c3, like fell out of the sky or, or emanated from nature or were decreed by God when in fact they're just stuff human beings have created. And I think what's going on now is that human beings are realizing that the categories that, that now exist are inadequate for how people actually want to work and live. And do you think this is why you tend to have a affinity for the startup community, seemingly? <laughs> you seem to like... I do it. Heck yes. Yeah. What, what is it about the startup community? Because these L3Cs and things, they're, they're, they tend to be startup-y, let's yeah, say, startup-ish. Yeah. We're not yeah, talking they're, they're, major they're, corporations. By, We're talking no, no, like... No, but by their very nature, they're startup-y because it's, it's a way, you know, it's someone who wants to uh, launch an organization, so they, they choose this form. Yeah, no, I, I have an affinity for startups for a whole, whole host of reasons. Number one, it's people acting autonomously. It's people taking risks. It's people doing things they care deeply about. And, you know, the great myth about entrepreneurs and, and startups is that the people who start them are, are, you know, greedy and want to make a lot of money. And there are some people who have that as their motivation when they start a company. And they very, very rarely succeed. Um, most people who are in startups, who are you know, uh, launching companies, launching enterprises, uh, are doing it for a purpose. They're doing it because there's a product that they need that doesn't exist. They're doing it because the world doesn't work the way that they think it should work. They're, they're, they're trying to leave an imprint on, on the world. And that's really the motivation behind startups. And I just being around those kind of folks is, is, is uh, exhilarating and inspiring. Right. And they don't necessarily have to go poor doing it and it is you know a lot of their motivation is is to you know support the community in that way I, I think you're exactly right it's just another way to contribute i agree with that it's a really good point so that's i think those types in particular i think big businesses could use this book um to get their managers to maybe loosen up the reins a little bit right and give people that um those four t's that you mention get them towards mastering, but really the type I people in the startup community, I think it, it can definitely be almost a manual for them. You well, know, uh, yeah, I hope so. From yeah. your from your lips to their ears. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Daniel Pink, for coming on to Purple Car Park. Thank uh, you so much, Christine Cavalier, for having me. Well, Purple Car Park listeners, thanks for joining me today. If you want to start learning about the new thinking on motivation, pick up a copy of Daniel Pink's book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. You can learn more about this book and Mr. Pink's other works, like A Whole New Mind and Free Agent Nation, at his website, 
www.danpink.com. Purple Car Park theme music and announcements provided by The Matthew Show, critically acclaimed original and independent music. Please check it out at thematthewshow.com. The doors stay open, but the seats stay filled. The lid is childproof, but the people stay filled. The price has gone up for the prison yet to build. The door